This week has been a roller coaster for United. Having cruised into halftime 2-0 up against Sevilla on Thursday, United conceded two goals in the second half at Old Trafford to make the second leg in Andalusia a winner-takes-all affair. As if that wasn't enough, both of United's first-choice centre-backs went down to injury in those same 45 minutes, with Lissandro Martinez giving us all a collective scare. Finally, at the weekend, United took a trip to the Midlands and put Forrest to the sword despite the absence of six first-teamers. Now that that's out of the way, Case, how are you feeling today? I'm pretty good, Aaron. I'm pretty good. Uh, you know, that, that's uh, a good result, and I thought we played pretty well. And I, I enjoy routine victories where we play well. I, <laughs> these are some of my favorite matches. I know that that seems anticlimactic, but I, it's also good to see us bounce back from what was obviously a really demoralizing and can, scary uh, midweek fixture. Okay, let's talk about Sevilla first. I didn't get a chance to watch the Sevilla game. I've seen the highlights. I've read all of the news and speculation about it. Um, seems like a rough night, all things considered, even though I think in the first half, a lot of people seem quite optimistic about this. Yeah, I think we were good in the first half. I think good is a relative term, though, right? The Sevilla team is really, really bad. United should be controlling this match, not just scoring goals and seeing it out. This never should have been in jeopardy. Sevilla never should have spent significant time in our half. And I think that's really the problem. Because ultimately, Sevilla, even in the second half of this match, really created very little threat. Both of their goals were own goals, really unfortunate. Yeah, end of the day, I really think the failure here, to whatever extent there was a failure, because obviously this, we still should have won this match, was the, the willingness to let it devolve. To, to go down, to, to stoop to their level. And I think this is something we see with United pretty often. It's, it's a weakness. Can you can you talk a little bit more about that? I'm guessing what you mean is when United face inferior opposition, they don't fully assert themselves over the game and control it. They kind of let it continue in a bit of a 50-50. Yeah, I would get more specific about it. I think it's a willingness to play end-to-end that doesn't benefit you uh, against markedly inferior opposition. City is not a good team. They lack quality in, in a lot of phases. They fail to dominate opposition in really any phase consistently. And actually, this is something they have in common with Forrest, in my opinion. But we sort of saw a different... Uh, well, we'll talk about that later. But sticking to Sevilla, yeah, I think... Yeah, the, the key thing for me is allowing the match to be end-to-end. And I think that comes from what was... Again, a really lackluster press, inconsistent press. Uh, I felt the, the back line really didn't follow the, the front six very effectively, especially in the second half. Sides who, who've opposition teams that fail to dominate you know, specific phases. And that's really what bottom half sides do in most leagues. They attempt to dominate one phase and then you know, generate an advantage from that phase, get a goal, get a point, get a couple points. Sevilla don't, don't effectively do that. If you can't effectively dominate a single phase, what typically winds up happening is you either get pinned and lose very badly, 
or you wind up playing these end-to-end matches. United should not be a team that play these end-to-end matches with bad opposition. They should pin opposition and just pummel them. And I think that that really is the concern for me. I uh, Often I get the impression of these matches where I think, this is a bad performance. I'm frustrated watching it in real time. Then I go back and watch it, and it's not that any it's not that any one phase was awful. It's that the the aggregate product is not a dominant performance. So we've talked a lot about how United can kind of fix that and settle possession, especially in terms of converting and creating high quality chances and building out of a press. Do you think there are other aspects of that, that United could clearly improve on um, in in a very easy way, whether that's new player additions or different ideas that you think that could be put in place that would help? Sorry. Do you mean simple fixes for buildup issues or do you mean simple fix like do you mean other issues the general the general feeling of not controlling games across the phases or across multiple phases yeah so i think it's two things i think it's a lack of technical security in key positions resulting in key ball losses especially in united's half that's one thing and I think we saw that against City, yeah. The other thing is inconsistent intensity in the press, inconsistent commitments to the press. In you know, there are teams where there's reason to be more cautious in the press, right? Um, I think a good example is a Brighton team who, who can play through you. They have the technical security to play through you, and so if you're going to press them all out, you really have to be a really excellent pressing side. However. Sevilla is not one of those teams. This is a team where, where you can commit all out to pressing them, and they'll cave, and you'll score goals. And I really think that was my concern. Both of United's goals in this match came from... Well, one of them came from saddle possession build, and the other one came from a counterattack. There's nothing wrong with either of those ways of scoring goals. In fact, it's encouraging to see United uh, build out of the back. But this really isn't a team that's going to challenge you from out of the back. Sevilla's press was ineffective. So, does it tell us much? What you, we could have learned a lot from would have been United pressing hard. Uh, and United didn't press hard in this match. And that's what frustrates me, and that's what concerns me. And I'm not sure that's a personnel issue. I think that that's uh, either a tactical choice or a coaching issue. Uh, or, or, you know, collective commitment issue. Now... Do you think it also might be something related to cup football in general? Like, do you think these cup games maybe give you more incentive to play it really safe and play the route that gives you the lowest possible chance of conceding instead of giving you the highest possible chance of scoring? I don't think this gives us, the way we play, this end-to-end football, gives us the lowest possible chance of conceding. I think... Interesting. Do you think, though, it might, it might, that might be the idea around it? Maybe. It would make sense against sides that have more quality. However, Sevilla don't have very much quality in the in the final third. And so I think the only... the only Sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, do you think we see a lot of this in the league? Because I, I do think some games get end-to-end, but in my experience, I feel like usually the games that United lack control in 
Um, what I see a lot is either another team that tries to assert themselves over the match in a particular way, such as pressing high or trying to control possession, um, or United making bad decisions in possession that lead to them giving away the ball a lot. I don't really think I see United struggling in the league as much as maybe in these cup games from a lack of aggression and a lack of um, holding back in the press in drawing or winning situations at least or even in losing situations really it's not that i thought the press was catastrophic in this match even or that it like completely lacked intensity it's just that it didn't have it was inconsistent sevilla were allowed to they were allowed time on the ball at the back that allowed them to you know play long into the channels in certain instances and they had some success doing that because it's that's a game of percentages so i mean maybe this has to do with cup football i definitely think there's reasons to play more end-to-end in cup football as opposed to trying to completely dominate an opponent. But I think those reasons generally have more to do with when you're confronting an opponent of equivalent quality. And Sevilla is not an opponent of equivalent quality. The risk when you play a side like Sevilla is giving them opportunity for randomness because they're not going to punish you with consistent high-level technical football they're going to punish you because you give them chances to just for weird stuff to happen and guess what United gave them chances for weird stuff to happen and weird stuff happened if you play this game again I don't think United lose it or or drop or drop points but they played it once and they dropped points they they or you know they didn't create the advantage you'd want to at home in a two-legged two-legged tie I think the other factor that plays into this is fatigue which I don't we've touched on this, but I don't think we've really dug into it. I do think we're starting to see fatigue affect this team pretty clearly. What do you think about that? I would comfortably say we've been starting to see fatigue in this team. I would hesitantly say I think fatigue could be an underlying, not like the main cause, but on a list of causes of why the injuries are starting to ramp up. Yeah. And I would be reluctant to say I know how much of a role of how much of a role fatigue is playing in this team struggling a little bit. Like I think with something like fatigue, it's the same thing I always say with a lot of intangibles is I'm not denying their existence in the game. Like they're they're clearly there. It's just very difficult to measure. Um and especially I think in such it's very a tumultuous easy to season. measure for the clubs to me- I think it's very easy for the clubs to measure. I think it's just impossible for somebody who doesn't have access. Yeah, to it's it's very difficult for us as spectators to go, "Oh, these players are tired." And I often think it's a really easy excuse. Ouch. Yeah, I agree. And so I don't really like just saying they're tired, that's it. The season has been too long. Like a, yeah, I don't Who think wants to hear that. <laughs> uh, a, I don't think, um, I don't think the season's been too long. I want United to be, have played this many games at this stage next season, because that means they were in all the competitions. And B, I don't really know what the evidence is that they're tired. I really think it's just you know A happened, which is you, people played a lot of matches, and B happened, which is United started to drop points. And so people go, A has led to B. And it's like, I don't really know. But anyway, 
I do think fatigue is playing somewhat of a role um, in what we're seeing. And I think it might only become clear in August if United have a stable summer and you see them come back and look super fresh or something looks super different. Um, and even then there might be, there might be other reasons for that, but yeah, that that's a long, this has been a long way of not really giving you a clear answer, but I just, I struggle with topics like this. I don't, I don't think yeah, we can I come think, up with a good answer. Yeah. I think the issue with things like fatigue is anybody who's saying, if we were to come on here and say it, the issue here is fatigue and really we don't need to, we, can, we shouldn't concentrate on these other visible issues because fatigue, if they weren't fatigued, that we wouldn't have these issues. We don't actually know that. So we would be wrong when we would be saying that simply because of a lack of information. The other side of it is coming on and, and ignoring fatigue, right? Because these are human beings who get tired and there's no doubt that that, that, that affects their execution. And knowing where to fall in between, I think requires more information than you can have as somebody who just watches them play. Maybe, you know, we watch them play multiple times, uh, typically, but that doesn't really alleviate the, um, that, that doesn't, that doesn't substitute from having, you know, training data and seeing these players every day. And, you know, if you're, if you're the gaffer, you literally can ask them, are you tired? Do you feel up to playing? Uh, we don't have that information. Yeah, so ultimately I'll boil it down to this then. I think we both agree fatigue is playing somewhat of a role. I think there there are signs that fatigue could be playing somewhat of a role. I don't think we have evidence that those signs are caused by the fatigue. And I think we can present some solutions that would help fatigue, which is what I've been kind of getting on about with squad rotation and you know the fact that a lot of the core players in this team have played too many games at this stage of the season um bruno seems to be almost immune to this but but yeah yeah. um i think i mean who, who do you think has played too many games other than rashford clearly like rashford clearly has played too many games and i think is i think you could feasibly claim his injury as a result of that who else do you think that's true of? Bruno has made the most appearances in the squad with 49. He has also played over 4,000 minutes. The only other player to cross 4,000 minutes is De Gea, um, which is fine. De Gea can play as much as... like It, it doesn't matter as much with goalkeepers. Um, Rashford is then third for minutes with 35-52 which is 700 less than Bruno. So you can already see... That's still just a ton the, of minutes, and he's missed time with injury. Yeah. He would have played more otherwise. So 35-52 minutes is 39-90s. That's, that's a lot of minutes when you still have a month of a campaign left. Because that means that you're... you're that means that he's going to have played... You know, if he was fit, he'd have played over 50-90s this season. That's too much. 50-90s is, is too much for a forward to be playing in a season. Um, and Lissandro's just behind him. And Lissandro just went down injured. Not to mention, Lissandro won the World I think Cup. It's tough. I think it's tough to blame Lissandro's injury 
it's not it's not impossible to blame his injury on fatigue, but I think it's tough. I'm not uh, gonna say that the injury is the fault of the minutes. I don't think that's a true yeah. statement. I will say that I think Lissandro having played 3890s at this stage of the season, that's August to April. He also went to the World Cup and played a full month. He won the World Cup. I know he wasn't starting for Argentina, but he went to Qatar, trained with another he team, played, a lot of minutes. played for he didn't a start month. Every match, but he played a lot of minutes. Then went on holiday, came back, and he still has close to 4090s. That's that's a lot of minutes because you're you're basically removing a month and a half of his season, and it's been 8. And so, you know, in an in an 8-month season, he has played close to 4090s. Which is which is more than a ninety more per than a week. Game a week. It's more than a full game a week, yeah. For eight months. Um, other than that, I think you begin to see a downturn here in the in the stats. Um, but I do question how much of that is because of injuries and suspensions. Like Casemiro, for example, he has only played twenty nine hundred minutes, but most of those have come in in stretches. I think like he's been suspended and then he's out of the team for a month. And then he comes back in and plays every single game. Um, he joined in August, so he didn't play much at the start. And then he comes in and he plays every game. I, I wonder if that also has an impact. Like, if playing one game per week steadily is better for you than playing, you know, five games in two weeks and then not playing for two weeks. I think it almost certainly is. Yeah. I think it's almost certainly yeah, yeah. better to play consistently a little bit as opposed to in Matt, like, you know, Five games in two and a half weeks, followed by a week and a half off. Right, like, which is where you are with a lot of these other players, right? Erickson played every minute pretty much before he got injured. Dalo was playing a lot early in the season, and then he ran into injury problems. Um, Luke Shaw was playing a lot before, you know, early in the season, Malasio was playing a fair bit. But then when Shaw came in, there was a run of matches where Shaw was playing every game. He got hurt. Um... Varane is a weird case because he has a history of getting hurt. Um, and, you know, he did play through injury in that game when he got hurt, but he also did rest last week. So I think you can give I think you can give him a pass on that one. But overall, I just think, you know, especially with the player, the four players, or less so to Gea, so the three players who are playing over 3,000 minutes by April, and there's probably three or four other players who would have played over 3000 minutes by this point had they been fit. I think that's that's a problem. Like I I don't think that's sustainable over 5 seasons. Even even with someone like Bruno who seems unaffected by it. I I still don't necessarily think that means he should be playing 50 games because what happens is it it the other thing is and I'm, you can stop me if I'm ranting, but the other thing is, you know, if Bruno gets hurt, someone else has to play his role. And so if he's played every game in the season and he gets hurt, nobody else has played in that role. Like there's no, you know, like Sabitzer played attacking midfield twice last week. And that was probably the closest we've had to like a settled good performance in a number 10 role from someone who wasn't Bruno. So there's there's a lot of effects here that I just think, you know, Again, I, I said this, but like I, I think the squad rotation is going to be the most important thing and the most actionable, productive thing we can say about um, about the fitness and the fatigue and the injuries of the squad. 
Yeah. The last thing I'll say on this is I also worry with Bruno. A lot of these players who, you know, are Iron Men and they play every match, every season for many seasons, they fade early in their careers. Um, there's a lot of dialogue uh, in amongst, you know, I, I would call it analytic uh, spaces, within analytic spaces, about whether a player's age accurately reflects their true age in the context of football, right? Uh, an 18-year-old who's played 10 years, is he really 28 compared to a 32-year-old who's played eight years of senior football? Because you would think the 32-year-old is much closer to the end of their career, but it's not always the case. And so maybe we should be looking at these things in terms of minutes played since you've been at this high competitive level. Um, it's obviously not as simple as that. A 32-year-old is closer to their body breaking down regardless because that's how the human body works. You age. But it is, simp it is not as simple as a player is this old, therefore they are going to decline in X number of years. And I think Bruno is a good example of that. Maybe a player you want to keep an eye on uh, for an early decline if he keeps on playing this volume of minutes. Uh, I think a good example of this is Rooney. Rooney started playing senior football at 16 years old. After that point, he started playing, you know, uh, 30, 90s a season for a couple of years, and then it gets up to 40 or 50. That's not sustainable. Like, you just can't do that to uh, a player's body for a decade and expect there to not be consequences. And I, I do worry about Bruno. I do worry we're going to get to that point with him. Uh, it would be awful if Bruno turned 30, 31, and suddenly he was unusable as a player. That, that would have serious consequences for how this team is constructed. Um, so, long story short, fatigue is definitely playing a role, but I think ultimately all of these things are just underlying concerns as opposed to what caused the injury. Like, I really don't want to insinuate that this is the reason why these players got injured. It's more just something that I keep in mind and see come up every so often. Bad luck is what you wrote here. So let's talk about bad yeah. luck. Um, Maguire scored ish. Um, this was, this was a really rough turn of events with the Lissandro injury and then the, and the own goals. Like a, even, even if United managed this game badly, still not something you expect to happen given the frame of outcomes. Yeah, Sevilla really created almost nothing in this match. Malasia just, you know, turned his brain off for a second. It was a bad Malasia performance in midweek. Um, you know, allows the first goal, and then honestly just comically unfortunate for the second goal. Uh, I, I don't even think, I don't think you can blame McGuire for that at all. Uh, as much as I think, I've got some negative things to say about McGuire later on, but <laughs> I don't think you can blame McGuire for that own goal. Bad luck. Uh, United should still be up in this tie. And then also they lost Bruno for the next leg, um, which means we're going to have to go to Sevilla uh, really shorthanded. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit. All right. Let's actually get to that now. Um, so in this match, Lissandro Varane went out injured. Rashford didn't start because he's injured. Shaw, same thing. He might be back for the game. And... Bruno is suspended. He picked up a yellow card. So no Malasia, no Shaw, no Lissandro, no Varane, no Savitzer, no Bruno, no Rashford. 
same back four as today, I guess. Wambasaka, Maguire, Lindelof, Dalo. Um, midfield, Casemiro, Fred Erickson. Uh, front three, Sancho, Martial, Anthony. Fix itself, really. <laughs> There's not much else you can do. Yeah, that was actually less fun than I thought it would be. Um... Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'm trying to trying to think if there's any I would change there. It's hard. I I don't like the games we've seen with Fred and Erickson in front of a defensive midfielder. I find it. I don't think we've seen a lot of it, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I the one that comes to mind is Sociedad. Um and I I just found that with Fred you get someone who's going to lead the press, but in possession, him as a ten is kind of spooky. And Erickson just doesn't have the, like, I don't think he has the physical dynamism that he had in his mid-20s when he was playing this role. Like, it seems like he's just a little bit, he just belongs a bit deeper now, almost. I thought we were really good in the press in that Sociedad match, and I think that was, I, if we perform the way, if we play out of possession the way we played in that Sociedad match back in the fall, the one you're talking about where Fred played as a 10, Against this Sevilla side, we will beat the Sevilla side, and we will go on to the next round. I think so. I take I understand your concerns. I, I would I, I'm not that worried about it. Um, Interesting. Do you think that yeah. the lineup you just said has a good chance of beating Sevilla? Because I honestly think this is still something you'd expect to win. You gotta beat this team, especially since you have Brighton in the FA Cup, and you're probably going to be equally shorthanded against them. They're a much, 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 much better team. You gotta you gotta progress in at least one of these cups. Um, so yeah. All right, I'm going to do a half Sevilla, half Forest question here. So against Forest, we saw Dalo at left back and Wambasaka at right back. Against Sevilla next week, we might have the opportunity to see Lu Shaw return if Shaw is fit to start this match. Do you put him at left back and remove one of the fullbacks, or do you put him at center back and keep Dalo at left back? All right, I can't find it. Whatever, I'll answer your question. It's an interesting question. I think I'm inclined to go Shaw left back, uh, left center back. Sorry. I'm inclined to go Shaw left center back. I think he put in really good performances there. I think I really don't want to see Maguire play knockout ties. To be honest with you, he scares me at this point. Maguire suspended. Oh, he is. Oh, actually, then this makes this, this makes this all interesting again. Yeah, so Maguire's suspended, so that, that means you, you either have to play, um, assuming Shaw and Malassi are not back, you either have to play Casemiro at centre-back or McTominay at centre-back. Are there any other options? You have to do one of those. I really hate to lose Casemiro in midfield, but yeah, we, we talked about this earlier in the week and I said McTominay, I think I've changed my mind, I think you're right. I think you go Casemiro at centre-back. I guess put McTominay midfield. So Shaw's fit, you put Shaw at center back with Lindelof, and then yeah, for sure, for sure. Like that's not. I don't even think it's a debate. No, yeah, I agree with you. I yeah, when you don't have other center back. I think it would be a toss up if Maguire was fit. Um, and then if Varane was fit, I would just play Lindelof and and drop Wambasaka. But anyway, okay, let's talk a little bit more about that Dalo Wambasaka thing. So Dalo started at left back, scored a goal. Wambasaka nice started right back. That is one of the best game. team goals United have played all season. Let's talk about uh, that goal a bit. Tell me why it's one of United's best goals this season. Yeah, I mean, it starts front to back. It's it's front to back. Um, you actually get Lindelof from left center back playing a nice 
uh, line breaker for, I want to say for Casemiro. I think he lays it off for Erickson. Erickson, no, sorry, he lays it off for Dallow, who at this point is inverted from left back. He's in the pivot. So you've got Lindelof playing a line breaker for Casemiro. He lays it off one touch for Dallow. Dallow plays a one-touch ball in for Bruno. Bruno plays Anthony. Anthony drives inside uh, past a couple of men, and then Dallow's made this long run uh, from you know, central midfield into the box. Anthony plays a beautiful ball, beautiful finish. Um, that's gorgeous football. Uh, and really it sort of, it shows the merit, the, 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 it shows another merit of using your fullbacks in an inverted role. Uh, I think you go up against a side that's not well organized, like Forrest. I, I, I hope we don't have any Forrest fans that listen to this podcast. Every time we play Forrest, I rag on how bad they are. But I really do think they're a very bad team. And anyway, why is that relevant? Dallow is playing in this, you know, uh, inverted role. He's playing in central midfield in possession here. I think predominantly that's for rest defense reasons. That's not for attacking reasons. However, he's pretty capable in these central areas. So he's able to contribute uh, progressing the ball. And then because Forest are disorganized, the fact that United's left back is in central areas here allows him to ghost through their entire structure unmarked. It's a direct result of him being in an un, a non-traditional starting uh, starting location at the beginning of the move, that he's unmarked running into the box uh, to finish the, the move off. So it's sort of a, it's a satisfying thing uh, if you've been following United's tactical ev- evolution over the course of the season uh, to see them score a goal like this. I think. Yeah, I would I would actually contest the point that Dahl is only there for rest defense. Um, I, I think not it's only. A, I think predominantly. Yeah, maybe. I I think in the post match, Ten Hag said that um, part of getting Erickson and Fernandez together and on the ball a lot in high areas was based on how the fullbacks move in and out and build up, um, which I think is a really interesting point because um, essentially what you're seeing is almost like a box midfield from United. Where in build up, yeah. Dalo joins Casemiro, and he d- and he did this in the earlier part of the season too, but from right back. Um, Juan Masaka also did it today too. He was in central areas pretty often. Yeah, yeah. So you'll you'll get Juan Masaka in midfield. I think you also get Juan Masaka at center back sometimes in a back three, but I could be wrong. Um, Less common, but yes. Yeah, and and then that really gives you a platform. Like you said, it's rest defense because in the event that you lose the ball, you have all of your defensive players ready to deal with the transition. And that gives you more freedom in how players like Erickson, Bruno, Anthony Sancho can commit forward. Yeah, that's how I interpreted his comments about Bruno and Erickson, personally, as being the fullback's invert, which allows Erickson and Bruno to both be high and narrow, uh, basically to not be a part of this rest defense um, unit. Uh and, and, and that's a privilege that's afforded to them by the presence of the fullbacks in deeper central areas. That's how I read it. But that doesn't mean, again, it, it, a lot of, a well-constructed side gets different utility from the same phenomena, right? So like Dallow inverting and Wamasaka inverting doesn't have to be for one reason and one reason only. Yeah, no, that's true. And I, I basically, I think it helps connect the lines. Like I, 
we probably spent a lot of the early season of this podcast talking about how Erickson is super important in buildup because United needs someone who can drop deeper, get on the ball, and spray it forward and help connect the lines between the defense and the sort of attacking midfield players that United have. And I think Dallo somewhat softens that burden um, in this role where he is often dropping into those spaces where he's picking up the ball from the defense. Um, and so I I got the rest defense thing, but I also thought it was really interesting to see Dallo um, in possession adding to that a lot. And and also Wambasaka. I think Wambasaka is a bit less progressive on the ball, but I have liked his security on the ball recently. I think he's playing a lot better. And actually, honestly, I think he's playing better than I ever thought he could play. So, yeah, I agree. I still think his technical insecurity has huge, huge cost. It, kind of in particular in the central role, uh, maybe not in particular, but there's instances where a more technical player would. He, he often because of this, you know, uh, this role where he comes in inside. He rece- receives the ball in a lot of space in that right channel. And he doesn't do the most with it that he could. And I really think that hurts this team. Especially when one of the biggest gaps between United and the league title contenders is their ability to consistently create chances out of the opportunities to create chances that they get. Right? Because there's there's multiple levels to this. There's You have the ball in a stretched game state. Do you turn that into you know, a, a threatening opportunity in the box. And then there's, do you turn that threatening opportunity in the box into a high-quality shot? And then there's, do you score that high-quality shot? I think Wamasaka really compromises you in that first aspect. When you have stretched game states, do you turn them into threatening opportunities in the box? I think he really lets you down, technically. Uh, no, no doubt about capacity. it. I I think there's a distinct difference between better and good here. Um, and I think... Being able to not lose the ball is intuitively you would think they would press for Varane to try and force the mistake and then win the ball and have a scoring opportunity. Um, I I think with Wambasaka you often get the first one where um, people don't necessarily win the ball off him a lot and create chances, but they take advantage of the opportunity cost that United have by the fact that he's the one who's on the ball and not the other players because he can't hurt teams with the ball at his feet the way other right backs at other top teams and even other right backs and left backs at United can do. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. This is an extremely, this is a data scientist way of viewing the game and it's not, it's an imperfect way of viewing the game. However, just to help people understand exactly what we're saying here, you can view every possession as uh, basically a, a network. Each uh, player has a path between it in the network. And each player represents a probability. That, that prob- or rather, each probability... Sorry. You represent each player with a probability. That probability is the probability that the ball gets, that once the ball gets to that player, they then move the ball to a teammate successfully in, in a, a positive fashion, right? If you've got a bunch of players and they all have, you know, high probability ratings, probability of positive action on the ball, uh, 
the whole team is going to have a high probability of scoring goals and therefore a lower probability of conceding goals. If you have one player who has a significantly lower probability, and again, this is a real quantitative way of objective way of viewing a, a complicated game. If you have one player with a much lower probability that breaks the chain in a way that really negatively affects your ability to string together attacks consistently and create lots of chances. Um, and there's, you know, you have to, you can find ways around that. Um, you can stop involving them so much, but I really don't think that's an option for high end teams anymore. And so I think you just got to get rid of this weak link. I was going to go there right now. And I, I honestly don't know if today is the day for a weak links discussion. We can do this. Um, I don't know how many of our listeners have read something like the numbers game, which is a really popular sports analytics book that I, I it was one of the first books when I read when I got into analytics. I think it's great. Um, but there's a chapter in there. This is a relatively older book that talks about weak links and essentially it yeah, Case is holding it up on the camera. But basically, there's a chapter about weak links, and essentially it posits that um, football teams are in many ways defined in quality by how good their worst player is. Um, and improving the quality of your worst player is more beneficial to a team than having the best, best players. So even if your best players aren't as good as other teams' best players, if your worst players are better than their worst players, you're in a better position than them in many ways. Um, and I don't necessarily agree with that theory overall. I yeah. think it's... I think I disagree with that, that theory overall. But it is an interest, it's a useful way to view the game. Yeah, so it's true to a point in that having some of the best players in a given competition... Um, especially attacking players, is key to being able to win the competition. And that's something we've talked about a lot. Star quality wins games and does it in a way that regular quality cannot do. And if everyone is good, then star players will just differentiate themselves from the good. Like, there will always be X amount of standout players, and having some of those players will undeniably tilt the odds in your favor compared to other teams. However... One argument in favor of a weak links game, I think, is the existence of tactical instruction that can be used to exploit or isolate specific players who are weak in specific areas. Um, and the reason why I bring this up is when you're constructing a team, I think there's a common belief that you can construct a team of specialists. Um, I think a lot of people view, view football as a specialist game. So if you have defenders who are really, really good at defending midfielders who are really, really good at passing, and forwards who are amazing at shooting and getting into good goal-scoring positions, you're going to be a great team. And I no longer think that that is something that's true about the game, especially when you're playing in a possession system. Because other teams can make it such that your players who are not good on the ball can end up on the ball and have time on the ball and mark out your players who are good on the ball. So they don't have the ball. Then... They can, you know, if you have certain players who are good at attacking movement, but other players who are not and don't read space and don't make any moves, uh, sorry, and don't make any runs, then you can mark out more the players who are going to make runs and have less to worry about in the form of the other players. So in general, 
what you need to do to bring the best out of these players is to have everyone have a core set of skills. Um, and that's where the weak link methodology comes in, because if you recruit a team full of players who have a specific set of skills, that team is much harder to isolate and exploit their weaknesses. And that's why you see teams like Brighton way overshooting their budget, because all of their players are good at the, at like what I would describe as core elements of playing in a possession system. And so teams can't exploit them. They can't say, we will let Brighton have this, because Brighton can do that. Or we will, you know, I can keep going. But the point is, I think what people often don't realize about these players who have very, very strong high points that are not necessarily in the core elements of playing the game, and as a compromise, they struggle in these areas of playing the game, um, is that they become a tool from which, or or they become a, they they become a an opportunity for the opposition to exploit that, and therefore there's an opportunity cost associated with having them in the team that often outweighs their value that they provide at their best. I've gone way off stream here, but basically, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Anyway, to wrap up this whole Wamasaka conversation, he's played better this season than I ever thought he could. I still think he's a really, he really hurts this team in most matches. And maybe there are exceptions, but I don't think the exceptions. A, I think United should aim to avoid matches where the exceptions are relevant. And B, I don't think the exceptions are frequent enough such that he's worth keeping in the squad over a second choice right back who can do the things that Wamasaka cannot do. And I think the people in charge agree with me, which is why we're so heavily linked with Frimpong. I'm pretty sure that deal is going to happen. I'm pretty sure Wamasaka will leave in the summer, regardless of what gets said in press conferences about Wamasaka's performance. Uh, I, I, th- I would be astonished if the people making decisions at the club don't see this as well. What do we have left? We haven't talked about Anthony and Sancho at all yet. Anthony was incredible in this fourth match. Uh, I think the only reason like, he didn't win, win win man of the match is because Bruno and Eriksen were so incredible. Um, what did you make of it? Do you think this is a big departure, a big improvement? If so, how? If not, why? Yeah, um... Number one, the most obvious thing, I think he's growing into dribbling a little bit, which is what we were kind of hoping to see. Um, He was successfully able to come in on his left foot a couple times, which is maybe a bad mark on his markers in Forrest's side and the ease with which he was able to isolate players 1v1. Um, And also some bad decision making, I think. Like, for the second goal, I think he's his involvement is absolutely fantastic. But I think it's also a mark of Forrest kind of getting stuck between deciding whether to lunge at him or trying to step back and cover the space behind him. And in the process of indecision, I think they kind of do neither. Um, For what it's worth, I think that's just kind of something that happens when you attack a team at pace. So I don't think you can write that up entirely. No, it's very true, but also, like, they could have fouled him. Um, (laughs) Yep. Yep, 100%. um, Secondly, I do think he is going outside more. I don't really buy into the thing that he needs to be good on his right foot to be a highly productive player at this level. Um, but I do think that the fact that he goes outside sometimes and can do anything from going outside 
means that players have something else to defend. Um, This is something we see a lot with two-footed wingers. When they can go outside and come inside with complete effectiveness, it's nearly impossible to mark anything they do because you can't predict it at all. Um, So I I think that's helped. Um, I think he's making more consistent runs that lead to shots. We saw that especially against Everton. I think it's also due to playing teams that don't press and don't block properly. Um, He's getting in behind a lot and in transition phases, but also in settled possession phases, which like the best teams don't let you get behind in settled possession almost at all. Like you can get across the last line, you can fashion a second for yourself, but when you see good teams play in settled possession, it's never like Lindelof or Lissandro hits an over-the-top ball that that crosses through the entire team and has him running in behind. So I think there's some opposition-oriented favor here for Anthony. The last thing is, in general, I think his actions are beginning to... I, like, I think there's more movement around him, and I think his actions are beginning to hit more... They're, they're becoming more intentional as a result. So I think a lot of Anthony's game is predicated upon the fact that he's a very good shooter from a specific zone. Um, and we've talked about this a lot. Just outside the box, on the right side, with his left foot, Anthony is one of the most proficient shooters in world football. Um, and what that means is, Anthony's decision to shoot is usually reflective of him cutting in and feeling that's the best option he can take. Um, and he's often right about it, I would say. I don't think I don't think Anthony is as bad of a decision maker as a lot of people say he is. And so if Anthony's shooting a lot, that's symptomatic of two things. One, it means that he is able to get on his left foot a lot. Um, and that's if he's getting the shot off and not it just being blocked. And number two is that when he does get on his left foot, the options don't open up quickly for him enough for him to see that another option is better than shooting. So in matches like, for example, the one with Dalo, in many situations, if Dalo's not making that run, Anthony's taking a shot there, right? Um in, in many similar scenarios, Anthony will come in onto his left foot, not see that kind of type, th- that kind of option and just shoot. So if you create better options for him, that means that he can try and pick you out. And I think we're seeing a little bit more of Anthony coming in and trying to pick players out. And then to round it off, I'll say, I think that almost works very similar, similarly to the unpredictability element, right? If his marker doesn't know that he's going to shoot, it's easier for him to shoot. If they don't know that he's going to pass, then, you know, they're going to mark out the shot and they're going to op- and it's going to open up passing angles for him. If you give defenders more to deal with, they're going to make worse decisions because they're more difficult decisions. Um, and they're going to have to prioritize and and choose options that they want to mark off. And so basically, we're seeing the, pr- the product of Anthony playing against worse teams um, in setups that are better to facilitate him playing at his best. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think that whole conversation about opposition quality is really relevant to a lot of different players and perceptions around how they've played. Neither Forrest nor Sevilla, in particular Sevilla, but neither Forrest nor Sevilla press well. Um, nor Everton. N- nor do Everton. Uh, neither do they form effective uh, blocks. Everton have more recently. Sort of a weird enough. They didn't against United, yeah. They didn't against United, but... They do against other teams. And I, this whole conversation hinges on how they how these sides play against other teams, right? Um, so that's the important aspect. But anyway, 
if you can't press effectively and you don't form an effective low block, a high action low block, which is to say you're sitting deep, but you're still defending intensely. Those are just bad teams. You can't be good and, and have both of those things be true because you will concede a lot. And so what this means is certain players are just going to look better. I think De Gea is a great example of that. I think De Gea's distribution has been generally really good in these last two matches. Don't be fooled by these matches. These aren't, these aren't the relevant ones. Let's see how he does against Brighton. Let's see how he does against Newcastle. We saw how he does against Newcastle. How, is, how does he do against Liverpool? How does he do against City? Not well. Not well. Not well. That's where it's relevant. Um, so, yeah. I, I think that's a key insight. I, I do think Anthony is playing better, but it's also opposition. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about Sancho. Um, what's going wrong here? I, I, I just, it's, it's like he's getting close, but something's just not working. What is that? That is not working. I don't know. He seems slow still. He's just not getting to balls that you would like him to get to. Uh, he seems to be telegraphing where he's going to pass the ball a lot of the time, taking a second too long on the ball, getting intercepted. It's sad because in spurts, we do see him have the, the quickness of thought that you would expect him to have. But then he goes through these spells where he doesn't at all, and, and it's Tough to be confident that he's on an upward trajectory anymore. Uh, and, and I try to be positive about him because I really do think this is a player who can contribute massively to this team. But at this point, this is bad. He's playing poorly. And this is, you cannot keep on expecting him. You can't keep on giving him opportunities. There, there has to be a point at which you say this is not working. And I'm not saying we're at that point. I still think the first year with Rangnick and Solstar is basically a throwaway. So I think really here you're you're at the end of your first season with him. But if you don't start seeing stuff early next season, I, I do think it is time to start talking about moving on. Yep. Um, tactically, I think Sancho can offer a lot to this team, but that is definitely contingent on him playing well. So I don't really have any disagreements there. I still think he's better off in central areas. And so you see him out on the left wing, he doesn't do that much. That doesn't surprise me. Especially when Dalla was playing this inverted role today. Sancho's very unsupported on the left side. We've talked about how that's an issue before. But then, I don't know, you still you still have to do the, the things that you can be expected to do well when you're put in a, when you're put in a disadvantageous situation. You still have to execute at a high level if you're a high-level player. And he's not executing at a high level the simple things, you know? If he wasn't wowing me in this isolated left-wing role, I wouldn't be worried. But he's playing poorly, which are two different things. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think if Garnacho was fit, he'd be starting, which is kind of sad in a way because Sancho was signed for a massive fee a year ago. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's talk about counter-pressing. This isn't necessarily directly related to anything that happened in one of these matches, but we got a question from a 
friend of the pod and our only uh, returning multi multi time guest, uh, John McKenzie, and he asked, "Quote: Why do United fans pretend that their biggest strength isn't counter pressing football?" It's a loaded question, but uh, Aaron, what are your thoughts on that? Counter pressing football, yeah. So. Firstly, let's talk about what counterpressing is. Um, counterpressing specifically refers to pressing at the time United lose the ball. So, in the moments immediately following United losing, the ball. yeah. So, where this comes from, in theory, when you think about it, if you're a kid on a soccer field, you have the ball, you run forward at the goal, you lose the ball. You run back towards your own goal to defend your goal. Counterpressing poses that a way to prevent the opposition from scoring, but also give you the best chance of recreating chances when you win the ball back, is by having the ball and approaching the opposition. And then when you lose the ball, trying to close the opposition down on the ball instead of dropping back and settling into a shape and allowing them to attack you. Teams that are known for doing this, Liverpool's like the biggest one. Um, Rosenball Sport Leipzig. Yeah. Um, Any of the Red Bull teams, uh, a big characterizing point of this style, um, as opposed to something like possession football, which also involves a lot of counterpressing, but I would say is less characterized by counterpressing, which is what John's getting at here. He's, he's saying United are better at the parts of attacking football and in-possession football that are associated with successful pressing than they are at the moving the ball around in possession. Um, What these teams you'll often see them do is they know that pressing is a strength for them. They know that they can win the ball high up and create chances. So they will take more risks in possession knowing that if they lose the ball, but the opposition are in a deep area, they can press them, win the ball, and create chances within seconds. Whereas a team like Man City will be much more calculated in their decision to take a risk of giving away the ball. With all that said, are United mostly a counter-pressing team? It's an interesting thought. Um... I would say, I think I get where John's coming from here, but I don't necessarily agree. Um, Firstly, I think United's biggest strength is settled defense. I think this team is really strong defensively, and when they get their when they get their um, when they get in gear, they don't concede goals or chances. De Gea is number one in the league for clean sheets. I know United have conceded a lot of goals, but that comes from three or four games that have been like absolute capitulations and not a bad defensive team. Um, secondly, I'd say United's second biggest strength is attacking transitions which maybe that's what John's referring to here. Like, that could fall under it's counter-pressing. Um, I, don't, I don't think it is. I think... Yeah, I think this is where I would... I shouldn't say it's not. I don't think it is. I think this is where I would disagree with John a little. Um, I think... United's... Most of United's chances, or rather the plurality of United's chances, because I think United can't create, create chances in a variety of different ways... But I think the, the plurality of United's chances come from uh, originate in United's half in transition. So th- I would call those counterattacks, right? As opposed yeah. to necessarily counter pressing yeah. uh, 
chances. Yeah, I think I agree with However, that. However, I think I think the more so what John's getting at here is I think a lot of United fans are eager to point to the team having better patterns in possession that lead to goals in settled in settled phases. Um in alignment with teams like Arsenal, Man City, given Ten Hag's background um, at Ajax, when I think a lot of their strong attacking moves come against defensive sides that are unsettled, um, I think what differentiates like you know really good possession teams from okay possession teams or teams that don't really play possession football is how they approach a press. And United still don't approach a press by trying to play out of it. They approach a press often by going long. Um, and then when they do try to play out of it, I don't think we've seen good results uh, on the whole. Um, and on top of that, I don't think United are consistently a high pressing team. So I don't necessarily think when the opposition are building out of the back, United will look to immediately win the ball off them. I think sometimes they look to counter press in moments where they see that there's a good chance to win the ball back. There are certain triggers, um, one, for example, is I think when United lose the ball advanced in wide areas, they will try to close down the opposition player who retrieves the ball and close out the opportunity to clear anywhere but along the line so they win the ball back. Um, and so a lot of their, a lot of their um, strengths come from being able to choose out these moments where they can press and win the ball and, in general, attack teams in unsettled shapes. Um, and so I think that makes them closer to at least at this stage closer to a side like Liverpool than they are to a side like Man City um which I don't necessarily think is Ten Hag's vision for the team so I get where John's coming from here I don't I wouldn't really categorize it as counterpressing football I think he slightly says it tongue-in-cheek to mean not traditional possession football um but yeah yeah, so I would add on to what you've said. I think I do think United are effective in certain counter pressing opportunities, like you said. I also think United have certain players who are particularly effective counter pressers. I think Casemiro and Fred are really great examples of this. These are not only uh, physically extremely gifted. Uh, like quick twitch reactioned players, but they're highly opportunistic about how they anticipate, you know, opposition behavior in the first moments of an opposition possession. Uh, and so I do think United have scored some key goals this season from counterpressing opportunities. I do think there has been some emphasis on this. Uh, Martial actually created a, uh, the opener against Forrest today through a counter-pressing opportunity. Um, I wouldn't say that's a big part of Martial's game. Uh, I wouldn't say we've gotten a lot of those from our center forward this season, but I remember Casemiro uh, won a ball and assisted a goal in a match at some point in the winter uh, directly from a counter-press. He's done that more than once. Um, It's definitely an aspect of how United create chances. And it is an interesting question whether... Maybe maybe the vision for this side is actually a counter-pressing one as opposed to one that one in the, the mold of uh, City and Arsenal where it's sort of like this uh, match-long, consistent press uh, that's more focused on 
defensive uh, solidity in the opposition's half than it is about um, creating chances directly from the press and then dropping back into sort of a rest shape, which is how I would describe what we've done this season. Um, it's a possibility. Awesome. Yeah, I think let's do a couple. I know we're over time, but uh, I think let's do a couple real quick. And then also, I'll add this in. To your point, Aaron, about a couple of matches ballooning United's defensive, uh, you know, um, how do you say it? Butcher's bill. Um, 46% of United's goals conceded in the league came in three matches this season. Which is, that's nuts. Like, 17 of the 37 goals that United have conceded in the league came from the Brentford 4-0, the City 6-3, and the Liverpool 7-0. Uh, so in United's 27 other games, they've conceded only 20 goals, uh, which is a really good defensive record. And obviously you can't just entirely ignore those three matches, but it's worth noting. How would you set up against Brighton to counter their strengths and mask our deficiencies? This is good. This is a good question. Um, this comes from Simon Hunter, I believe, right? Yes, it does. Sorry, I should have said that. Um yeah, I like this question because Brighton are currently tearing the league apart. Um, Pep was talking earlier this week about how he thinks Brighton are the best team in the world at getting the ball from goalkeeper to midfield. And obviously, as the coach of the best team in the world at getting the ball from goalkeeper to midfield, he would say that. But I don't think Brighton are that far off. Um, and the main reason for that is because of... Partly, partly Graham Potter and their recruitment system before this, but also because of Roberto De Zerbi, their new coach, who has very eccentric but very cool ideas about how to get the ball out of the back. Um, and I won't get too deep into this, but the summary of it is he has a much more microscopic or like a much larger focus on baiting the other team into pressing his side. And then they have the technical ability to play out of that. And then once they do, they have a lot of space to attack into. And so my response to that would be to ease up on the press against Brighton. Not not press at all, but not press them in especially isolated goalkeeper build-up situations. Um, things like goal kicks, the goalkeeper achieving the ball. Um, and force them to play through a tighter United side. Um, the second thing I would do is probably not try to play through their press with De Gea, um, and especially not if Lissandro and, I'm trying to think now, Shaw might be out, Malasia might be out. With these types of players out, you don't really want to try and play through Brighton's press. In a cup game, it's more important to not lose than anything else, because if you never concede, you're never out of the cup, unless you lose on penalties. Um, and so I would try and make this uh, a very, you know, early season United game where they go long from goal kicks. Um, they pressed a lot more in those games. I'd press a little bit less, but I would counter press in terms of trying to win the ball when you lose it, but less so trying to win the ball in isolated buildup situations. And in general, I just would not let 
Matoma get too much time on the ball in advanced areas. I think that's like that's like a pretty would, specific thing. But I I I don't think Brighton uh like I think their their biggest weakness is if you ask them to break you down, they they in the past have not had outstanding attacking quality. Now I would say they have good attacking quality in players like Welbeck's having a decent season with a good run, but I don't think he's a special striker at this level. Um, Evan Ferguson is a potentially special striker, but he's 18. Um, they've got a couple other players playing bit part roles, but the big contributor to this attacking gap is that they switched Trossard for Kaoru Mitoma, and he is currently tearing apart the Premier League. I don't know if we've talked about this, but he is... We haven't. I love him. He's I love him super so good 1v1. <laughs> um, lovely playmaker. Has a really, really strong idea of... Um, whether to go short in terms of in attacking areas to to cut in and go short to the man near him, try and use his fullback or go to the back post. He's also a super good indirect aerial threat, which is so odd. Like he has scored, I think he's like one of the most prolific wingers in the league from headers. Um which is a which is a good trait because, you know, it's something that I think Rashford's getting better at as well, where the ball will swing out to the other flank. When he's been when they don't want Matoma to have the ball, and then it'll go to the other flank, and they'll swing it in and hit him at the back post, and he scored. Um, so he has a lot. There's a lot of different ways where he can hurt you. I think he's the first attacker Brighton have had in all of these years who is like a genuinely special talent. Um, he's 26 this year, which might which might age him out of a move to the absolute biggest clubs for a massive fee, but. If big clubs can sign him for an affordable fee, I 100% think they should, um, especially if they need a left winger. And I would not, I would not let him exercise influence over this match. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I, I think I agree with all of that. For what it's worth, I would love to have Matoma at a reasonable price. The thing is, we will never get Matoma at a reasonable price, and I think he turns 27 next season. So, oh, I can, I can, yeah. I mean, I can add to that. Um, I don't have that much to add. I think you nailed it. I think you got to go long. Brighton will kill you in the press. I probably, I would actually probably be more proactive in the press. Uh, I think United's best chance in this game, and I think you saw this in the Liverpool match as well, United will have a good chance in this game if they can keep the ball in Brighton's half. And I don't mean like, oh, if they can pin Brighton. I mean, just get the ball in Brighton's half. And then I think United can... Not pin Brighton indefinitely, but create chances, have good spells, not let it devolve into what's happened against Newcastle recently, which I think the Newcastle performance was really, really bad uh, and something you have to avoid against Brighton. This is, of course, assuming that the striker will absolutely be first priority. That's from Rahul. United don't absolutely need a right back. I think a goalkeeper is more important than a center back. So I go midfielder, no, I go goalkeeper, midfielder, right back, center back. With striker at the top. Yeah, and that's obviously changed depending on what Ten Hag sees from Maguire and Lindelof. Like, I think there have been murmurs about Lindelof leaving. If that's the case, that becomes more important than right back. But striker first, goalkeeper second, central midfield third. Okay. 
I think for me, I have goalkeeper and central midfield flipped. But again, we've had this conversation a million times, and I'm sure we'll have it more this summer. One more question. Let's do Jedediah. With this season reaching its end, and with a trophy, maybe two, and probably top four, I'd call it successful. What does success look like next season? Signings, competitiveness in different competitions, how we'd play, etc. Oh, well, I have a pessimistic answer to this one, unfortunately, which is, it probably looks about the same. Um, I really think it's unlikely to win the league. I think United will have to reach a level of recruitment that I'm currently not seeing in order to beat the City Super Team. Like, I was saying this earlier, I didn't say it on my, uh, I, I didn't say it on Twitter, but I was saying this earlier. I think this City team is the best team to ever play the sport. I think they have not only battered everyone, but invented new ways to batter teams. They have the best striker to ever walk the planet up front. They kill teams for 90 minutes every single week with different players and therefore will almost consistently break 90 points every season until something changes. And... For United to beat that, they're going to have to be that, right? And I don't know. Even Arsenal have been fantastic this season, and they have amazing players, and they haven't been able to do it. So if United keep winning cups and stay in the top four in the Premier League, it's not that bad. Arsenal are still top, but yes. They are still top. I think they might still win the league. I think there's a lot of luck involved in that. I think there's a lot of excellent recruitment and coaching involved in that. I think if United got as good as this Arsenal team, I would be pretty happy. I would be happy. I think they need to be better than this Arsenal team, though. I would like for them to. I'm just not that optimistic. And I think they. I, I think, think they, you're I right on the basis their... of them having more budget. Yeah, I, th- I, I actually mean that in order to beat this City team, I think you need to be better than this Arsenal side. Arsenal. No, I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I would say my a successful season next year looks pretty similar in terms of what it looks like on paper, i.e. points totals, um, cup progression, stuff like that. couple of caveats. Performances need to be way, way better, much more dominant. Uh, I'm looking for, you know, a higher goal difference in the league. I know that sounds like, oh, meaningless, but United shouldn't be, we need to to cut out these crazy blowouts. We need to play out, we need to play top opposition more evenly, more consistently, and not let them get these matches get out of hand. And then the other thing is Champions League quarterfinal, I think is something you kind of have to, United need to be threatening in Europe at the top level again. I think that's really a, something you have to demand, especially when I think Premier League clubs, the ones in the Champions League, are consistently the, amongst the, the four cha- Premier League clubs that make the Champions League are amongst the eight best teams in Europe, usually, I would say. So I think anything short of the Champions League quarterfinal is a pretty big disappointment, even though there's a lot of, there's a lot of variance involved in Champions League football. So I'm not saying you sack the manager if you don't get it, but I definitely think it's a Really, you have to make the quarterfinal. And honestly, I think very soon we need to be in a semifinal. I think United are one of the best eight teams in Europe. 
I think I'd reframe it to say, do not get eliminated by a team that is not as good as you. Yeah. yeah. If United lose to, and don't get and don't get dominated out of the out of whatever round you go out in, right? If you go out to a team that's better than you, that's okay. But play them even or close to it. Yeah, don't, like if United don't lose let to... it be like a Barcelona type thing a couple years ago in the Champions League. Yeah, yeah. If United lose in the round of sixteen to Bayern Munich after finishing, you know, second in the group to PSG, let's say PSG sort out their issues. That's not a bad outcome. That that just is what it is. That's just Champions League. Um, if United finish second in their group to Sevilla, no, Sevilla are not going to be the Champions League. If you famous last words, if United finish second in the <laughs> yeah, group, yeah. <laughs> Sevilla are going to be in the Champions League in the second division of Spain. Um, if United finish second in the group to Benfica and then get eliminated by. I don't know. PSV. Like that's a bad that's a bad that's a bad outcome. That'd be really bad. Be really bad because PSV. And has happened. And has has happened um in the last six, seven years. Yeah. Like all of the Champions League exits have been pretty embarrassing. We need like we need a clean, successful Champions League campaign. You play the six matches, you beat the teams you're supposed to, you play the teams that are as good as you evenly. You make it to the next round. You beat the teams you're supposed to. You play the teams that you're that you're supposed to play evenly, evenly. That's what we need. We haven't done that in the Champions League since yeah. like in probably 13 years, 12 years maybe. Yeah, let's not do that. All, All right, right, Aaron. I think we've got more than enough material for this episode. Yes, yes. I'm gonna have fun editing this later. We'll see everyone next week. Hope you enjoyed this week's Devils in the Details. You can follow us at Devils ITD Pod on Twitter or on a variety of streaming platforms. Our awesome theme music was made by Jacob Connor. You can find at Jacob J. Connor on Twitter. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.